0: Welcome to Bespoke Investment Group's Bespokecast. I'm George Perks, macro strategist for Bespoke Investment Group. Bespokecast features conversations with markets professionals and economists whose views we find interesting or insightful into the world of finance and economics. If you like what you hear today, you can learn more about our firm by visiting our website, bespokepremium.com. Bespoke offers financial market research and insight to investors of all types, ranging from individuals to large institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. If you enjoy the Spokecast, we would also appreciate you reviewing the podcast in the iTunes store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. Welcome back to BespokeCast. We've taken a little bit of a break to start the summer, but this week we are back with Jim O'Shaughnessy. We are thrilled to have him on, and it's going to be a really fun conversation about his path through the industry, how he built O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, some of the really interesting stuff they've got going on. Uh, so, Jim, thanks so much for, ha- for coming on BespokeCast with us. Well, thanks for having me, George. I'm delighted to be on. Jim is the founder, chairman, and CIO of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, uh, which is based out of Stanford, Connecticut. So uh, they run money for folks as well as uh, providing some research solutions, which is one of the new areas we're looking at. Um, We're going to talk about with him in a little bit. But just to get a little bit of background, uh, Jim, you're originally from Minnesota?
1: That's right. Yeah, I grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota, Um, stayed there until about age 31. Uh, When I moved uh, to Greenwich, Connecticut, uh, primarily because uh, as my first company, O'Shaughnessy Capital Management, uh, was gaining traction, uh, most of the people who were interested in becoming clients and working with us, etc., were here in the East. And, uh, you know, I always had from a a very young age a a lifelong love of New York City, Uh, so it was kind of like two birds, one stone. And my kids were... Uh, six and three so did not want to move them after they started uh, their grade school experience so my son was about to go into the first grade so we thought well this is perfect timing
0: before you uh, launched your career in the financial industry you were at Georgetown University is that correct
1: yeah i was at the school of foreign service at georgetown um and actually would have finished there loved the school uh loved uh, what i was studying uh but uh fate had other plans uh, it uh put me at a party in saint paul where i met my wife now of 36 years uh, fell in love pretty quickly and uh, decided to s- uh, stay and finish at the University of Minnesota so that I could be with her.
0: That's so sweet. I mean, you, you never hear stories like that anymore. My generation, everyone meets on apps, and you know, the, it's <laughs> the, the sort of chance encounter, star-crossed lovers at a party is just that just never happens. So that's such a fun story to hear and um, heartening. Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah. And uh, it, it especially so
1: since, you know, we're now, now we're uh, heading into year 36. So that makes it extra sweet, I think. Well, congratulations
0: <laughs> on that. Um, so was there a huge difference in terms of studying economics at the University of Minnesota versus the School of Foreign Obviously, the School of Foreign Service is, is very much a feeder into the State Department. And it's a slightly different lens from looking at the world compared to what I assume would be sort of freshwater macro at the University of Minnesota. Can you talk a little bit about the context? Contrast between those two different educational programs, both of which are are, are very well regarded.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when I was at the School of Foreign Service, I was uh, I had the very fancy uh, major title of uh, International Economics and Business Diplomacy, and and that is hinting at uh, you what you uh, commented about uh, about School of Foreign Service and feeding um, the state and and uh, uh, you know international. Uh, type careers. When I got to the University of Minnesota, uh, just by happenstance, uh, you know, back in 1980, when I was uh, moving over there, uh, the school of rational expectations was was really gaining a foothold in economics, um, and many of the primary proponents of that school, who have subsequently ended up at places like you know Yale, Harvard, Stanford, et all, uh, were at Minnesota. Um, and so, uh, I went from, uh, a, uh, I wouldn't call it loose, but, but a, uh, a more generalist, uh, major, uh, at, uh, Georgetown to, uh, much more specific, uh, you know, what I would call hardcore economics at the University of Minnesota. Um, so, you know, just, just by, by sheer luck, um uh, i got into the program uh, that uh, that ended up really fitting well with the way i was kind of thinking about economics and and um uh, about uh, the whole idea of bringing the human actor back into the equations.
0: We'd love to talk a little bit more about, um, rational expectations theory. Cause it is super interesting. Just a quick shout out. If anyone is on Twitter and is interested in the history of that school of thought, uh, at undercover hist right now, um, Beatrice Chere, I think that's how you pronounce her name. Uh, who's an, a historian of the economic, uh, the school of economic thought. Uh, she is going to be doing all summer studying, uh, research at the University of Minnesota and the Minneapolis Fed on rational expectations theory and how that was advanced through those institutions. So if you're interested in that, follow Undercover Hist on Twitter. Uh, back to you, Jim. Um, so can you just give like a quick overview for folks who maybe aren't um, as up on on what is going on with rational expectations theory? What does that mean? And why is it bringing the human actor back to economics where before it, it had it had been divorced to a certain degree? Sure, so the simplest way to look at it, uh, and kind of their
1: breakthrough theory, Uh, was that in economic theory, up until rational expectations came along, um, there was no room for people uh, reacting to changes in the macroeconomic world, right? So the argument was made that, you know, you could double taxes and human behavior would not change, or inflation could spike up and, and double uh, and uh, stay very high, and human behavior would not change. Um, and obviously, when you put it that way, that makes absolutely zero sense. Um, and what they did in Rational Expectations is try to model okay, so let's say we have a change in economic policy of X, what will all of the uh, people in the economy do. Will they do nothing? Will they change their behavior? If they do change their behavior, what will what effect will that have on the changes we're proposing here? Um, and so it took a much more nuanced uh, look at you know, the way things really work, kind of the way behavioral economics, for example, today is, is looking at uh, the way people actually make investment choices, as opposed to the way, say, modern portfolio theory or efficient market theory would have you believe they
0: do. The extreme uh, interpretation of rational expectations would be something like the Laffer curve, which basically says if you have extremely high taxes, you can actually cut tax rates that will um, result in in higher economic growth, which will lead to a higher tax take because of the higher growth than you would if you had, you know, the the extreme high tax rates. Um, so that very much fed into the supply side discourse of the early nineteen eighties in response to very high inflation in the nineteen seventies, the Volcker Fed hikes and the very high real interest rates in the early nineteen eighties. So you were sort of in that milieu where that that sort of that sort of thinking um, was moving into the dominant intellectual position. That must have been so interesting to sort of watch in real time.
1: Oh, yeah, it was absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I mean, um, we have interns here at O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, and and it amazes me. Even people studying economics today, they the the idea of interest rates being you know 14% 15% is just something that is virtually impossible for these kids to wrap their heads around but when you when you think about it so i'm 58 years old and i have essentially spent my entire adult life in a falling rate environment right uh, because volcker killed the uh, inflation yes he did but he did it with a nasty recession and uh, very very high interest rate so it was a serious shock to the system um and and uh, so you know very interesting times but obviously as we all know now because we know it in hindsight um that was the thing that really had to happen uh and it shaped investor expectations for the idea that uh, you know we we simply were not going to allow inflation to continue unabated, um, and I think it's one of those examples where it took a guy like Volcker uh, to be able to a be credible. That yes, this is the way it's going to work, and there was just a, a confluence of the right people in Washington, uh, in members of both parties, uh, at the time saying, "Yeah, okay, we we understand, we have to support this." Um, and, uh, lo and behold, it, it worked quite well.
0: There were definitely some other factors at play, of course, globalization, the, um, demographics in the (laughs) United States, so on (laughs) and so forth. So not to oversimplify, We don't want to oversimplify too much, but, uh, still must've been very interesting to sort of see that go all go by in real time. Do you think now the situation we have with very, very low rates of inflation and, and um, up until relatively recently in this economic expansion, there was overriding concern and, and much of it overblown, of course, but certainly overriding concern. The deflation was a really big problem and that disinflation had gone too far. Um, do you think that that is a similar problem to the problem of very high inflation that can be changed by policymakers? Do you think that that is is a problem worthy of concern, or is that something that's you know, inflation sub two percent is never going to be a problem?
1: Yeah, I so I did a study and it it's available uh, at uh, O'Shaughnessy Asset Management website, which is www. Uh, osamoscarsamadammary. dot com. Uh, where we looked at uh, the market under a variety of uh, inflation uh, scenarios. And what we found was, you know, it really is kind of Goldilocks um, to um, be in a low inflation environment for the stock market. Um, so I think, um, you know, just, uh, from my own personal, uh, look at the data and at the, uh, the behavior of markets in those, uh, conditions, I, I, I think, you know, you, you really, if you, if you're in a very low inflation environment, it's, uh, that's a pretty good place to be, uh, you know, really even despite which way rates might be going, um. Uh, and it's and it's significantly a better place to be than in you know high inflation um disinfl- uh, inflation isn't great um but uh, we we've had so little of that other than really the period of the 30s um and as you mentioned in your in your question you know there there was there was a lot of uh, speculation about well don't we really have uh, some uh, deflationary uh, things going on. And yeah, we do. We have uh, innovation, particularly in technology. Um, if you look at uh, price patterns, um, you know, is increasing dramatically and prices are falling dramatically. Um, and so I think that that is driving a lot uh, of that, you know, at the sort of economic level. But I think Those are all very good things for consumers and for people in the economy in general.
0: Your first gig out of college after graduating from the University of Minnesota was in venture capital in in Minneapolis. Is that correct?
1: Yes. Yeah, it was.
0: So venture capital, I think a lot of people associate with Silicon Valley, early stage tech investing. That's certainly where things are today. Yeah. How is the modern, like, Like obviously, that's not exactly what you were doing back then. Right. Um, so can you sort of talk a little bit about what you were doing and how it's different from what people think of when they think of the Silicon Valley VC today? Sure, absolutely. Um, so back then, um,
1: you know, uh, Sands Road and, and, you know, kind of all of the archetypical things people might think of when they think of. VCs, uh, you know, they weren't, they were there, but very few people knew anything about it. Um, So uh, we actually didn't even call it um, uh, venture uh, investing. We called it early stage investing. Um, And uh, really, it would probably be much more analogous to the way we think of angel investors now um where uh you have a group of uh private individuals some corporations uh et cetera, who are looking for uh, nascent um, enterprises and the other big difference of course was uh you know they they uh, certainly weren't in technology um they were in a whole variety of different i guess what you might even call mom and pop or traditional industries um, so things like um, uh, things like uh, uh, fashion designers who uh, want to uh, expand their line, uh, things like real estate, smaller real estate development that had kind of an unusual hook, um that type of thing. So, you know, uh, the, it's interesting to me, and your question really brings it out. Uh, the The term of art "venture capitalist" has has really taken on a completely different meaning um, uh, in today's world um, than than would have properly been what we were doing back in the early 1980s. Uh, but you know, same sort of principle in identifying promising new businesses. Uh, that were in need of capital. Uh, the the structures were very different back then, and um, so you you managed to see a lot of different uh, type deals. Um, interestingly enough, very few, with the exception of one, uh, which was a sign making company um, having to do with anything having to do with technology. Um, and again, it's it's kind of fun to. Reminisce about this because, you know, back then uh, the traditional makers of signs were, you know, traditional printers and and uh, mockups and all that was done, uh, you know, not by computer. And one of the companies that we invested in uh, was all computerized. And it was like the first go-around where you could come in. Tell the uh, the uh, person at the company what you know, what colors you wanted the sign, what you wanted it to read. They would they would uh, do use the CAD CAM on the computer to show you what the sign would look like. Um, if you approved, they would literally print it for you. Um, and so that kind of revolutionized the way that uh, that was being done at the time. But um, very very different and distinct from what we would classically call venture capital today.
0: And it was during this period that you started to get involved in looking at using data to understand the market and to um, evaluate the, the persistence and the effectiveness of different strategies. Um, is, is that correct?
1: Yes, it is. So at the concurrent with uh, this, uh, with the early stage investing, I was very um, intrigued by public markets. Um, And I actually had been my, my interest in public markets had predated um, the early stage investing that I did when I got out of college. Um and um so my grandfather uh, was an extremely successful oil uh, wildcatter and and uh, uh, owner, um who, I'm very proud to say, uh, did extremely well and ended up giving away virtually his entire fortune during his own lifetime. Uh, but the portion that he was unable to uh, give away while he lived uh, went into a foundation. Uh, The O'Shaughnessy Foundation, which still exists uh, today. And uh, as a kid, um, they had all of the quarterly meetings of the Foundation's board, which was uh, consisted of my aunts and uncles and my my father uh, in St. Paul. And then when I got old enough, I think I might have been 16 or thereabouts. Uh, they would invite me to have uh, to the dinner that they always had at uh, my home at the conclusion of the uh, foundation meetings. And you know, as you might guess, in a big Irish family, uh, they are not a bunch of wallflowers, and uh, people have very defined points of view about things. And and I was fascinated by listening to the conversations. Uh, And discussions that my father and uncles and aunts would have about the relative merits of, uh, you know, a particular company as an investment, because obviously that was one of the main things that the foundation had to decide was how are they going to invest, et cetera, which managers were they going to select, et cetera. Um, And Uh, Listening to them, and I believe it was IBM that was being discussed, um, it really dawned on me that, uh, you know, they weren't asking the right questions to my young mind. Uh, Rather than talk about, you know, the pluses and minuses of the uh, current CEO of IBM at the time, why aren't you looking at the underlying numbers? Why aren't you looking at what you have to pay? for every share of IBM. Is IBM an expensive stock? Is it a cheap stock? You know, all of those questions seem to me to be vastly more important than the personalities involved. So I started um, a small research project at the James J. Hill Research Library in downtown St. Paul. and I was going to be very ambitious and 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 start with the uh, S and P 500 tear sheet book, um, uh, but immediately saw that that was going to be just too much because, uh, you know, this is the 1970s, and I'm when I say spreadsheet, I mean a paper spreadsheet. Um, so I decided after finding a book that listed all of the Dow Jones Industrial Average constituents um, throughout history that i i would rather do that so i sort of meticulously wrote down each of the 30 members of the dow uh for each year um and then and then did uh, the highlights you know price pe dividend yield, all, all of the, that sort of stuff um and uh, found, uh, as we all know now very well, that for the most part, uh, if you simply went to the Dow and bought the 10 Dow stocks with the lowest PEs, you did vastly better than if you went and bought the 10 Dow stocks with the highest PEs. Uh, you also could do better buying the highest dividend yield, which came to be known as Dow uh, dogs of the Dow. Um, Anyway, um, that that kind of got sidetracked because uh, being uh, a teenager, I was much more interested in girls and other things like that. Uh, But I reignited that research um, when I began the early stage investing, because now we had computers and we had databases and and I could uh, be much more serious about it.
0: You used CompuStat to do that?
1: I uh, originally I used Value Line. Um, I graduated to Compustat uh, after writing my first book, which was called Invest Like the Best. Um, and by that time, uh, O'Shaughnessy Capital Management had been formed. Uh, primarily um, at, at the behest of a fellow board member of mine, I was on the board of the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. I love uh, chamber music and, and uh, kind of grew up as a kid uh, listening to it because my father was a huge fan. Um, and uh, he was the uh, chief counsel to a conglomerate in, in the Twin Cities uh, who had put together a lot of disparate businesses, and so they found themselves having uh, all sorts of different pension plans they had to administer. And, and again, this kind of being now the mid-80s, um, they they didn't really have the tools that we now take for granted um, to determine, you know, we, is this manager a classic growth manager, a classic value manager, etc.? Um, And so he uh, and I were pretty good friends, so he knew about all the research that I had been doing just independently. And he said, you know, if you found a company, we'll hire you uh, as a consultant because we think that you could be very helpful um, in determining the uh, efficacy of the various managers we have, whether they're staying true to what we hire them for, et cetera, et cetera, kind of a classic consultant's role today. So um, we uh, started that, and that was kind of where I had my aha moment, because we built what were called normal portfolios, um, and that's a portfolio which is far more specific than a benchmark. Uh, it's a portfolio that is uh, built using the same factors that the manager's portfolio demonstrates having uh, allocation to, right? So you would take the manager's portfolio, put it on the in the database, look at the most significant deviations on things like PE, earnings growth rates, uh, et cetera, and then use the biggest uh, deviations to screen the universe. So you got to a portfolio that had very similar characteristics to the uh, underlying manager. The purpose of this was sort of twofold. It was number one, to see if that manager was very consistently investing in the same kind of securities, but number two, uh, to see what kind of value the manager's trading, buying and selling added or subtracted from the portfolio. And one of the first things that we saw was that even though we put huge costs onto these normal portfolios, the normals were doing significantly better than the managers that they had cloned.
0: In other words, in other words, you would create just to sort of, I don't know, put that into a single sentence. The the you would create a, a a customized benchmark based on the realized behavior of the manager. It's it's not it's not like the S and P five hundred. It's a subset of companies, but. Those companies are derived from observed characteristics of companies the manager has actually invested. That's in. correct. Yes. Um, so, and would you do that on a, on both a retrospective and prospective basis? In other words, are you are you going back through time and saying, okay, you know, three years ago their portfolio had this characteristic, two years ago, two years, um, or a year after that, so two years ago it had a slightly different one. So we're going to update our benchmark and sort of it's going to evolve as the manager evolves, or is it purely okay? I'll take a snapshot back time and then use that to track this manager going forward.
1: great question. Um, so uh, for the managers with the normal portfolios, the uh, normal portfolios uh, were allowed to evolve uh, where they would uh, try to reflect the managers criteria as of the most recent uh, uh, portfolio that we had access to. Um, but one of the things that we did and what I wrote the book and best like the best about was, uh, oftentimes if you can find a great manager be it a growth manager or a value manager small cap large cap really doesn't matter which um what we find is is that um if you just leave the clones alone after uh, identifying the key factor characteristics that the manager um, uh, relies upon. Um, you can do even better <laughs> than than by trying to update with the way that the manager changes their minds. And that isn't intuitive, so let me explain why that is. Um, oftentimes, what, what my aha moment was when I was doing this was, you know, you know the old pogo uh, cartoon. We've met the enemy, and it's us. Um, what we found was that the the clone portfolios or the quantitative portfolios, to use today's terminology, uh, were doing so much better because they were 100% uh, in
0: consistency of application of the underlying strategy. Right. So, or, or at least one hundred percent consistency of application of the underlying strategy, as far it was as it was observable with the with the um, data that you had available. In other words, like, uh, you know, y- there may have been an underlying factor in all these securities that wasn't necessarily identifiable via public information, but based on what was publicly available, you have a set of factors that that. Are representative of what the manager is doing.
1: That's yeah. That's uh, That is a good uh, nuance on what we were doing, and uh, also sort of leads to the idea that you know, uh, you know, flashing forward to today, uh, you know, if you looked at us describing our investment uh, process ten years ago, you're going to hear a lot of the same things. But what you aren't going to see is the improvements that we have made to the underlying process itself the improvements that we've made to uh, the definition of the factors that we're using, et cetera. So I think that's a good catch on your part. Uh, you're absolutely right where you say it, it might be missing some nuance that the manager, you know, uh, came to later uh, after you'd built this, this clone portfolio. But the, the, the big takeaway that we uh, uh, really emphasized was the reason that, we believe that a very disciplined quantitative approach to investing uh, works well over time is because it negates all of our fo- all of our human foibles and many emotionally based uh, decisions where the person would swear up and down that they were not making a decision emotionally when in fact they were um you know uh, take uh, any decision somebody was making in January of 2009 for example <laughs> and and to try to make the argument that uh unless they were buying by the bucket load uh, that they were emotionally selling because of the the havoc that was being wreaked in the market so so what we found was all of a sudden i started delving into all of the various studies uh, that have since become uh, very famous in all the behavioral work by guys like Danny Kahneman and others. Um, and and what we found was that a lot of the presumed way that people make investment decisions that would go into the economic models actually isn't the way they make decisions at all. and. And so we felt that if we could identify um, a group of factors that had long-term efficacy in uh, showing that they worked well on a variety of market environments. Things like value, things like momentum, things like earnings quality, like financial strength. These are kind of the bedrocks upon which we build most of the portfolios that we manage here at O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. In, you in know, other words,
0: just to in- inject, sorry, I, it, the, uh, it's not just looking at fundamental data. It's looking at a combination of fundamental data, price data or or a, a technical indicator um, and uh, assessments of fundamental data that go beyond simply the value of the security like earnings quality is is trying to assess you know, is this going to continue earning and is this generating um, sustainable earnings as opposed to uh, just rapidly growing and it's then going to blow out. So um, it's not just as simple as saying, okay, low PE, low price to sales, low price to book, whatever metric you want to go, low debt, whatever you want to go by. It's also looking at, at, at the price action and at the um, underlying uh, quality of the fundamental earnings as well.
1: So, uh, it, it, yes, that is correct, but it, uh, let, me, let me tell you what we look at when we look at earnings quality, that might help. So, we use things like current accruals to assets, change in operating assets, depreciation to CapEx, uh, etc., and, and where that company finds itself in that distribution. Right. So if companies are are, you know, monkeying with the books, so to speak, that's going to show up in those that I just listed, Um, you know, how they're treating accruals, how they're how they're depreciating uh, assets versus CapEx, et cetera. And so it, it it isn't a qualitative assessment assessment on our part it is rather where do they score in this matrix um, that uh, we run all of the companies through so um, it is it is still very very highly fundamental in nature uh, in terms of looking at the at the entire balance sheet uh, as opposed to just top or bottom line Um, and obviously companies can change right so um, I think of Citi uh, Corp. Uh, during the 7 08 period. period, um, one of the things that uh, we found that uh, worked much better for us was running companies through a whole series of these composites that we have developed because it got you out of harm's way a lot of times when say just a traditional let's call it deep value approach would not have done that so as an example um you know uh citicorp was one of the cheapest stocks in the s p 500 it had one of the highest dividend yields uh people who weren't looking at things like financial strength or earnings quality might have found that a very attractive purchase Uh, But because we looked at these other uh, 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 things to, in essence, disqualify, right? Uh, Because we often say that the stocks you don't own are almost as important as the ones you do, right? You want to avoid uh, a whole group of stocks that have historically uh, gone on to do very, very poorly, And so, for example, with the Citicorp story, um, even though they scored really well on the value side of things, uh, their financial strength uh, uh, score was in the worst decile, right? So that precluded us from buying that particular name. Um, So I guess the easiest way to describe this is – it is all still heavily weighted to uh to fundamental data uh, the only price data that we would take into account would be where we use momentum um and Uh, there we are using momentum not just straight up six month or 12 month or nine month we use a blended average of momentum plus we bring in to account the volatility of the stock because what we found is that stocks that have lower volatility and high momentum tend to perform much better than stocks that have super high volatility and high momentum Um, but most of this uh that what we do and and uh the the way we build the various portfolios um, if, if you know, there's a like-minded individual listening to this podcast, you know, they can take What Works out on Wall Street, the fourth edition, out of the library and, and you know, get a very, very good sense and uh, easy uh, description of how they, too, could build these types of uh, uh, factors to, to look at the securities uh, in a much different way.
0: When you say that, it's interesting you say that because um, this... Approach you're describing, so whether it's the normal more, excuse me, the normal portfolios, whether it's ranking by a huge number of different attributes um, across the available set of stocks, call it the S and P 500. Um, this all sounds quite data intensive, um, but you know, I'm sort of thinking of you back in in Minneapolis in the public library looking up uh, Dow stocks. Back then, information was less available, so you know, you could you didn't have to be as comprehensive as you do today to to find gems Um, and yet today information is still relatively available I mean it's easier to look up um, all this different data if you have for instance a Bloomberg terminal Um, but that's by no means the only way to do it and it it does seem like um, like as you said you know someone could look up your book at the library read through it Read through a publicly available, you know, free loaned book and then use free resources if they had were willing to commit some time to come up with something that's a reasonable um, replication of, of what you guys are doing. Um, do, you, do you think that that's true? That, that, you know, the individual investor, assuming they're willing to commit the time and the effort and the energy to it, uh, can still outperform if it's something they're willing to put their mind to? So I, I think
1: the, the, the million-dollar question there is uh, the, the behavior of the individual, right? So, um, you know, over the course of my career, I have found that, you know, you can scream from the rooftops what the secret uh, sauce is, and it doesn't matter because people simply either won't do it or will do it incorrectly. I, I joke that what we do really is arbitrage human nature um because you did a very nice summary there yeah you can absolutely go get the fourth edition of what works on wall street as well as some other great academic papers that are also free and available to anyone at the library Uh, they are very specific about the selection criteria that is used um, in uh, determining uh, the portfolio uh, of stocks and yet one of the things that we think just doesn't change and won't change anytime soon is the very nature of human behavior. And, and I believe passionately that um, mother nature designed us to make us horrible investors. Um, And, you know, we could make this a seminar on behavioral ticks and biases, um and you know it would take uh, it would complete the hour and then we'd have to add several more hours. I mean, the the <laughs> the number of biases that people have and suffer from is extraordinary. And if you could
0: pick one, is there is there one thing that you see again and again and again as most common as the most damaging, whatever that that you know? Yes, yeah. And that what is that, the mo- that is the worst.
1: That would, would be. Recency bias. Recency bias means that we time weight everything that we're thinking based on what we just read or what we just heard or what the market just did. Right? So. If you, are, if you are a victim of recency bias, you discount at huge rates anything that happened, say, five or more years ago, and you also discount anything that might happen five or more years into the future. By doing that, you lock yourself into a time frame, which is kind of like the perfect killbox for making bad choices. And, you know, I make uh, all sorts of uh, uh, of, uh, examples in the book. One I can give you, um, you know, here's a simple strategy, right? This strategy makes it sounds sounds good, and I could show you numbers, right? And so the strategy is this. We're going to simply buy the stocks that have the best gains in their sales for the
0: previous year right? So biggest revenue change year over year. We're just going to buy those every December or whatever. Biggest
1: revenue change year over year. We're going to buy them once a year. And We're going to buy the 50 that, had, that show the absolute biggest gains. And then I could show you data. I could show you a five-year period um, and you would look at the graph, and you would see that the S&P 500 uh, turned $10,000 into $16,000 over that five-year period. And this very simple strategy that we're talking about, buying the biggest revenue gainers, turned that $10,000 into $33,500, you know, double the S&P 500. So you've got data. Uh, looking at uh, right, staring in the face, right. Wow, this thing is killing it. Uh, you've got intuition. Boy, it sure sounds like a, a reasonable way to make money by focusing on the companies that are uh, enhancing their sales the most over any any year. But you've boxed yourself into five years. Well. The 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 example I just gave you was from a five year period for that particular strategy during the soaring sixties, right? Which was kind of the first runaway uh, mania market that uh, people around today had seen. Um, And yet, if you looked at the fullness of time, right, if you looked at, say, 1964 to 2009, which is the period my book covers, you would see that buying that same group of stocks annually (laughs) would turn your $10,000 into $58,000 over more than 40 years compared to $639,000 for the S&P 500. In other words, it's a horrible strategy. Why is it horrible? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but the easiest one is these stocks get very popular. They get very, very expensive, and they get priced to perfection. And as we all know, perfection is rarely attained. And so when they disappoint, they disappoint hugely, and the investors run for the exits. The point being, if we are only going to look at a short period of time right, based on uh, what we are reading about what's happened in 2018 so far or what happened in 2017 or the last couple of years, we are missing a huge piece of the story and we are looking at what we will not yet know is this an anomalous period is this a normal period what you need is as much data and time as you have available to you so that you can cover as many market environments as possible before you can start making reasonably good assumptions on the efficacy of a particular strategy for buying and selling securities
0: so is there sort of a minimum time period that you would typically look at? Would it, I mean ten years is probably too short. Twenty years, thirty years. What what's the minimum box you need to say? Okay, this is something I'm I'm going to look at incorporating into my process, and I think that the returns that it's that the excess returns are reasonably consistent from this strategy. What's the shortest possible period?
1: So that's a, yeah, that's a that's a great question. The we, we have a flat minimum of twenty five years. We won't, we won't consider anything unless we can look at 25 years of data on it. Uh, but we also want to look at the environment that we're looking at, right? Because that could be a 25-year period that has one huge anomaly to it that other periods don't. Our preference is uh, we have the CRISP data that's maintained by the University of Chicago, um, the Center for Research and Security Prices, uh, which goes back to the uh, 1920s. Um and and people will often say to me, Well, you know, the market back then was nothing like the market now. Why would that even matter to you? And the point is always the same. Well, were were human beings pricing securities back then? Yes. Are they now? Yes. Others are too, right? There are algorithms and all that, but I still think the majority of people pricing securities are are still letting their human nature you know get in the way. Um so, our way of looking at the world is to say, we are always going to be victims of um, of uh, these human biases, recency being the ex- example I gave you. You know, Danny Kahneman had a, a great quote, which he called them cognitive illusions. And and he said, like visual illusions, the mistakes of intuitive reasoning are not easily eliminated. You know, and it's like if we're in the desert together and we're both dying of thirst and we both look up and see an oasis, we both see that oasis. There could be a dispassionate guy in a white coat in a nice air conditioned truck right next to us saying, oh, yeah, there's no oasis, guys. You're seeing that because you're dying. (laughs) And him telling us that wouldn't change what we saw we'd still see that water. And and that led to a really interesting study um, that uh, the name of the study is Why Do Individuals Exhibit Investment Biases? Um, And you can find a copy of it at our website, OSAM, um, in uh, materials associated with a Google talk that I gave. But the, the so what for our listeners today is that what these guys did was look at identical twins and in Sweden. And it being Sweden, they keep records on everything, unlike here, and so they could look at kind of the complete investment uh, history of these identical twins, and, and the, the 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 lead line is that basically they came to the conclusion that 45% of these investment biases were genetic, in other words, they were inborn; they're part of our DNA and the conclusion is really actually pretty sad because the conclusion is they found that they could there was no evidence at all that edu- education could significantly remove these biases from their genetic investment behavior
0: that's incredibly and, depressing <laughs> is it <laughs> <laughs> it,
1: it really, really is. But, you know, it, it kind of, when I found this study, I just like, it was like, ah, of course. Of course this is why, because, you know, this is not my first rodeo. I've been talking about this for 30 years. I've been talking to people since I was in my mid-20s, and I'm 58 now, and, and I never shut up. I'm a classic Irishman. <laughs> and, and you can tell people until you are blue in the face that they are facing all of these biases. And here's the thing that's fascinating. What I have found is that, is that no matter how smart the person that is listening and reading and seeing all of this data, what they do, there's a little trick in the brain that is uh, really interesting. They will read it, and they'll believe that it applies to you, but not to them. So they'll say, oh, well, George and Jim – Yeah, of course, those guys. Those guys are going to have recency bias and hindsight bias, and you know, halo effect, let the halo effect uh, uh, make them uh, choose one party over another. But I, I would never do that.
0: It's like that famous statistic where like 70% of people think that they're better than a better driver than most other people on the road. It's like no, that that's <laughs> exactly. Like <how> that works. <laughs> and it's, it's, George, it's worse.
1: It's actually worse than that. Yeah. When they do that and they say, you know, there are 10 categories, right, and there all 10% apiece. The category one is the 10% of drivers who are the best. Category 10 is the category of drivers who are the worst. Where do you fall? Well, most people put themselves either in the top 10% of drivers, but the more modest types put themselves in the second 20%. And nobody's (laughs) picking below
0: the, the, the median.
1: Nobody's picking the other eight. And anyone who's even had an introduction to elementary statistical analysis knows that this is impossible I mean it's like the old joke uh, from Lake Wobegon, where everyone is above average <laughs> right it doesn't work that way and yet our brains have these really clever kind of w- sleight of hand I, you know, or sleight of brain that that allows us to see it in others right so another really interesting thing is we are pretty good at judging odds as long as it's not about ourselves. Right. And and so what people will say is they'll say, okay, so George and Jim are going into this business. It's a restaurant business and the location that they picked has uh uh seen five failed restaurants over the last ten years. They're not gonna do so well. Do you guys think George Yeah. Do you guys think George and Jim are gonna do well? Everyone's gonna go, no way. The minute it becomes them. Oh, I'm going to oh. crush it. It's going to be great. It's going to be the new hot ex- spot in town. Ex- exactly. And that's what fascinates.
0: In hearing all this sort of... Um... Almost condemnation of individual decision making, right? Like like people are not rational. people can't get it through their thick head what they're supposed to do. I mean, <laughs> you know, like uh, to be extremely blunt about it, uh, does that make you reconsider at all your the, the where we started this conversation with rational expectations theory and a school of economic thought based on the idea that human beings are rational and have good foresight about the future and will behave accordingly?
1: So that's a great question and and my answer is yeah, it did change the way that I thought about rational expectations. Uh it, it it does not change my belief that I look at as kind of a bedrock belief of rational expectations, and that is the simple premise that if you change economic policy dramatically, people are going
0: to change the way they behave. Right? right. That, you can sort of separate that from expectations into rational response, right? Like ab- that's, absolutely. That's absolutely. a little bit di- You know, there's a distinction between, um, you know, people will behave differently under different tax regimes and, oh, well, as soon as you raise tax rate or lower tax rates and increase the deficit, then that means that people will automatically discount higher tax rates in the future because the deficit has to close at some point, right? Because they're super rational and can do all the calculations. It's like, mm, that's a little mm-hmm. bit of a different question from, it, okay, they're going to spend less if you if you tax them more or something like that
1: exactly exactly as long as you're keeping your uh as long as you're keeping the 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 parts of the theory that you know are reasonable like we've just discussed um you you still have a lot of room left over for the way okay so yeah people will change their behaviors if you do radical policy change at the governmental level um now we get the interesting and fun task of figuring out well how are they going to change um, and you know, then that brings me on the investing side kind of back full circle, right? To, okay, we, we know about these biases. We know about the, the, um, the power of dispassionate decision-making based on, you know, uh, decades and decades of data, right? Um, and does that mean we get them all right? No, absolutely not. In fact, we, we go into every portfolio we create with a presumed error factor. And that's this notion of base rates, right? We look at how often on all rolling one, three, five, seven, 10, 15, 20 year periods, our strategy, both in real time and, and the test, uh, beat its underlying benchmark and by what magnitude. Um, so we know that as time increases, the batting average goes up, as you would expect, right? Because things are, are less, uh, uh, it's it's more signal and less noise as you elongate your time horizon. Um, and, you know, really, it's you can break it down to some pretty simple concepts. What we're trying to do is the way any life insurance company would try to determine who's going to get a policy or not. You know, I find that when we move it out of stock selection and move it into other areas, people get it so much quicker. So an example I gave at my Google talk, which I'll give here, and that is, you know, hey, there is a food truck uh, that I really like. And I think that uh, you, uh, George and me, we should we should go half and half and, and buy this place. And, and we go out and we ask uh, the owner, okay, so how much, how much did, revenue did you have last year? And he says, well, I, I had 100000 in revenue. And we, okay, interesting. That's great. Um, we'd like to buy the food truck. How much do you want for it? And he looks at us and he goes, I love my location. I love my food. Uh, I'll sell it to you, but only for $10 million well you and i are going to look you and i are going to look at each other and say this guy is absolutely out of his mind there is no way in hell that we could ever make a profit if we gave him that amount of money for that particular revenue stream and yet slap great stories on it right and people will buy things that are Thousand, ten thousand ten thousand times current revenues because they believe that uh, the story is is the truth, and they are going to watch those revenues just multiply and multiply and multiply. Well, that rarely rarely happens. Does it happen occasionally? Yeah, but those are that's a lottery stock, right and 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 lotteries, in my opinion are are taxes on people who are not educated and are not very bright, because when you're playing the lottery, the odds are so far against you that it made the comedian Fran Leibovitz, uh quip once. My odds of winning the lottery are the same whether I buy a ticket or not.
0: <laughs> right. O'Shaughnessy Asset Management has seen some changes of late. Um, your son, Patrick, is now the CEO. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk just, we've got one more segment at the end that we, we like to wrap up with, but before we get into that, it'd be great to hear how that transition has gone and how it is, um, you know, transitioning a business from one generation to the next. Um, it, you know, so often, I mean, HBO has got a brand new show about (laughs) the perils of this particular, um, situation and you hear so many stories about families that just dissolve into acrimony over business decisions and control of businesses and so on and so forth. How have you guys approached that and thought about that? I mean, mostly, I, I think it's probably a question for how have you personally sure. uh, thought about that and and worked to prevent some sort of, I guess acrimony is the best way to describe it, developing around that transition in the business. So,
1: Uh, I, 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 uh, serve on a lot of charitable boards and I was just, uh, rotating off as the chairman of the board of a group here in New York, uh, called the chamber music society of Lincoln center. Um, uh, a group that I loved uh, and that when I became chairman, I said I will only be the chair if I am allowed to term limit myself and my successors, <laughs> because I felt that, uh, you know, one person, no matter what the quality of that person uh, being in the same job for too long, particularly in, in the nonprofit sector, you need a dynamic, Change right, and and so the idea. I've always thought a lot about succession, and um, so kind of concurrent with that, I was looking at O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, and it it uh, dawned on me that you know it's not going to change one thing about the way anything gets run here. Having Patrick move into the CEO position um a little earlier than i would have but patrick demonstrated uh, really mad skills at um at this business and and i i know that i am not unbiased so i take uh people that we do business with and uh, people other companies I take their opinions about him and about some of my other employees and about me much more seriously than I take my own, right? And, you know, sort of to a person, our our principal partners and people within the firm confirmed what I had seen, and that is that Patrick uh, is really a dynamic thinker in this space. Um, He is... Uh, deeply, deeply uh, uh, educated in everything that we do. Um, And it gave me the opportunity to uh, give a signal to the marketplace, which is, guys, we're not going anywhere. We're, We're planning on being around for decade upon decade. And as far as that goes, you know, I'm still chairman, chief investment officer, and I'm still the principal owner of the company. So, uh, you know, I, I I felt that that was absolutely the best way to demonstrate to both our clients and our potential clients that we're in this for the long run. We are, we are going to be around decades, and it's not contingent upon me. Um, and it's not, for that matter, just contingent upon Patrick. We have a fantastic team working here, most of the principals' uh, owners of the firm as well so we have very aligned interests um and uh you know i just think that uh, having the ability to demonstrate the uh y- you know youthful uh, uh vitality and idea generation married to experience of many many markets uh is it's a good combination to have
0: and would it would it be uh, oversimplifying to say that for you the motivation to to leave a, a positive legacy sort of was was really important to you and that's what sort of allowed you to say okay I need to start pulling back a little bit and transitioning a little bit not entirely obviously as you pointed out you're still the owner and principal operator but you know the desire to be to have confidence from your clients and from the marketplace that was very important and to do that shifting the business, beginning to shift the business towards Patrick was, was the right way to do it? I think
1: so. Yes. I think that, you know, I'll, I'll take a page out of my grandfather's book and I'll probably never retire. Um, and, um, so I thought, well, that's the case. Um, let's, let's let our clients, let's let our prospective, uh, clients, let's let everyone that works with us, understand O'Shaughnessy Asset Management is going to be a very long-term company. We are committed to long-term goals, and so it fits very nicely with our message, I think, Uh, because I'm a huge believer that you, you have to walk the walk. Anybody can say anything, right? Um, what you have to do is demonstrate your commitment, you know, day in, day out. We do so in the way we invest. We now have done so in the way that we've aligned the leadership at O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. I just think it's very, very important to be absolutely transparent and crystal clear with our clients and with the rest of the marketplace. We're, we're, we're in this for the very long term.
0: To close out, we do a segment called Trading Rich or Trading Cheap. I'm gonna give you a, a subject, and you're gonna tell me whether you think it's trading rich, whether people think it's, um, you know, overly valued. It, you know, it's too hot. It's, uh, you know, not gonna live up to its potential versus trading cheap, something that um, maybe is is underrated by by folks out there and um, deserves more attention. So, uh, to start off, you said you're a huge fan of, of chamber music. Um, I've recently been trying to get a little bit more into classical music generally myself. Um, um, would you consider beethoven overrated or underrated as a composer <laughs> and i know that's a hard one right because however you cut it he's one of the greatest of uh, all time
1: oh boy yeah you're not going to let me off easy here
0: um not with the first one
1: anyways so so i uh, i'm going to pull a fast one on you and i'm going to tell you that i think that beethoven is correctly esteemed by the classical music uh, community. In other words, if someone was saying he was the greatest, I think maybe they're probably wrong. And if someone was saying he was among the worst, I'd say they were wrong as well. Uh, I think. Who's your favorite composer?
0: Who, who would you put as greatest? Uh,
1: well, that is a very personal thing, and so that this, this is for different reasons, but my favorite composer is uh, Bach, uh, Johann Sebastian Bach. And, and I love him because the, the, his music is eternal. And, you know, if you were on a desert island, it's so mathematical uh, and yet so exquisitely divine that you could listen to it forever and never tire.
0: Okay. Uh, moving on. Uh, you were a frequent, frequent guest back in the day on, uh, current, uh, CEA chair, uh, Larry Kudlow's show Kudlow and co. He also, uh, was someone that was coming of age during the period when the great interest rate shock that was Paul Volcker's chairmanship, uh, came through. Inflation was strangled down and the, uh, supply side was loosened in the United States, resulting in a whole bunch of different things that have yep. dictated economic history for the last 30 years. Uh, So you're frequently on uh, business television or have been in the past. Uh, Do you think business television as a format is overrated or underrated as it currently stands?
1: Overrated.
0: Why is that? And
1: I think think it's overrated because it has moved to a more compressed cycle of – uh, you know, what's the DAO doing now, now, now? <laughs> and I think that it is bringing up in people the very thing that we try to suppress, which is the recency and making choices based on what's just happening right now. And and even if you were to like look at a segment when I first started uh, on as a co-host on Squawk Box with Mark Haynes, um, and contrast it to now, I mean, we were given time to actually discuss why we felt the market was doing what it was doing, and you know we gave we were given time to to list you know things why we might be wrong or what investors should think about and and i and I fear that a lot of business television don't mean to just signal, uh, single, uh, CNBC out here. It's all of it. It's, it's, it's moved to an almost ESPN like format. And I think that, you know, there's a great quote with all by getting get understanding. And I don't think that I think that information is one thing and knowledge is another, and they are over serving information and underserving knowledge.
0: Okay. Uh, last one. Um, do you think value investing as a as a concept is overrated currently or underrated? I mean, it you know if you look at the classic value indices, it's just like the S and P five hundred value or something like that. Horrible underperformance for a long period of time. Um, the same for managers that are value tilted. Um, do you think that value is is overrated and is going to keep underperforming without? Um, bringing into uh, the equation other concepts like, for instance, momentum? Or do you think that uh, value investing is due for a turnaround?
1: I think it's due for a turnaround. I think it's underrated right now. And one of the things that uh, would I would point to to back up that opinion, and remember, these are all just opinions, um, but that uh, there's so much uh, negativity around value investing right now. So many people – Uh, saying, you know, uh, look at how long it's underperformed. It just doesn't work anymore. The economy is different. We've got the fangs. We've got all of this sort of stuff. Just read uh, economic history and remember that Warner Brothers, the uh, old movie company, went up something like 600% when they announced having talkies. And, (laughs) you know, it's the same story but with different uh, players. And so... Ultimately, for value investing to no longer work, you have to say that the rules of economics have changed, and I don't think fundamentally they have, um, and I think that ultimately, uh, over uh, the next several cycles, value will come back and and uh, continue to uh, do very, very well over the long term, but classic value investing has been uh, underperforming significantly. Um, and generally speaking, that gets back to recency bias. That's an interesting tie in, right? Uh, and people overweight that information about value investing, uh, because of what they've seen recently. Um, and they're not looking at the big picture and the full scope of the investment results I definitely think value comes back.
0: Well, with that, we will wrap it up. Uh, Jim O'Shaughnessy is the founder, chairman, and CIO of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management in Sanford, Connecticut. Great of you to join us today. Uh, Thanks very much, Jim. and, And we'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks,
1: George. It was fun. Take care.
0: Joining us this week on the Bespoke Cast. Once again, I'm Bespoke Investment Group's macro strategist, George Perks. If you enjoy Bespoke Cast, please consider reviewing the podcast in the iTunes Store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. If you'd like to learn more about our firm, please visit bespokepremium.com and follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. Our research includes reports, analysis, commentary, and data sets sent out daily. Special thanks to the Free Music Archive for the music featured in this episode. The track is called Marathon Man by Jason Shaw, and is made available under the Creative Commons license. Please visit freemusicarchive.org for more information. Copyright 2017, Bespoke Investment Group, LLC. The information herein was obtained from sources Bespoke Investment Group, LLC believes to be reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy. Neither the information nor any opinions expressed constitute a solicitation of the purchase or sale of any securities or related instruments. Bespoke Investment Group, LLC is not responsible for any losses incurred from any use of this information.